This is going to be a strange sermon today because I've gathered all you people here into church to tell you how lousy religion is. Let's see if we can do this in a way that is respectful but honest. Remember last week, we, were, we began with the first chapter of Mark and we saw how Mark, which was the first gospel written, we believe, the first gospel written at the time they thought, okay, Jesus isn't coming right back after all. The people who knew him best are passing away. We better write this stuff down. So they wrote it down. The first one to write it down was Mark. And where did he start? He didn't start with a little baby and flapping cherubs and, and shepherds and wise men. He started with an adult Jesus and Jesus being baptized by John the Baptist and starting his ministry and right away being in among the common people. So that's the first chapter. The first most important thing Mark wanted to say was Jesus was one of us. Jesus came among us and did his work among us. The second most important thing you would figure would be in the second chapter. And in the second chapter, you start to see the religious people really get bugged by this new guy. Beginning at the first verses of chapter 2. When he returned to Capernaum, after some days it was reported that Jesus was at home. So many gathered around that there was no longer room for them, not even in front of the door. And he was speaking the word to them. Then some people came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. And when they could not bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And after having dug through it, they let down the mat on which the paralytic lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this fellow speak in this way? It is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? At once Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were discussing these questions among themselves. And he said to them, Why do you raise such questions in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, stand up and take your mat and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, stand up, take your mat, and go to your home. And the man stood up and immediately took the mat and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. So right away, right away with Jesus, first of all, someone's cutting a hole in his roof. And uh, what, what a cool thing. They can't get to him through the crowd, so they go up on the roof and dig their way through and drop this guy down on his mat. Did you just see that? Jesus standing there preaching, or sitting there preaching, everyone gathered around, and all of a sudden, Dust comes down, light shines through, and this guy is slowly lowered down. And Jesus heals him in a way that the scribes, who were the great experts of the religion, they had all the scrolls of the Old Testament memorized backwards and forwards, and they would write things down, and they knew every jot and tittle of the Hebrew Bible. Immediately, these scribes were uneasy with the way of Jesus' ministry. And so he answers them by performing a really big miracle. And he stuns them completely. So that's the first group that object. We go on. 
Jesus went out again beside the sea. The whole crowd gathered around him and he taught them. As he was walking along, he saw Levi, son of Alphae, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And Levi got up and followed him. Now, Levi was a tax collector. They were despised by the Jews. Absolutely despised. They were seen as, as corrupt, as self-serving, as greedy and dirty and unclean. And as Jesus sat at dinner in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were also sitting with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard this, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners. Now, we get this word sinners today, and it's been popularized by Christianity for all of us to call ourselves sinners, which is probably a good thing to do. It's a little bit of honesty in our lives. But back then, a sinner meant someone who flouted the Jewish law. So Jesus, this, this good Jew, and this itinerant rabbi is sitting down in the house of someone who flouts the Jewish law, who, who doesn't follow the law, with people who don't follow the law. And the Pharisees, who are the sect, they are so strict, they know which shoe to put on first in the morning. A Pharisee will not change a bandage on the Sabbath because that would be work. A Pharisee is... I want you to think of the most obnoxious Christian you know and multiply it by about a thousand, and you've got a Pharisee. And they object to who Jesus is choosing to fraternize with. So this is our second religious group that's all up in arms by this Jesus dude, this guy who's just coming in and turning everything on his ear, talking holy talk, but sitting in the house of a tax collector, sitting with sinners and enjoying himself, probably the worst part of all, enjoying himself when he's supposed to be so religious. And he answers them by saying, this is who I came to see. I didn't come to see those of you who have it all straightened out. I came to see the ones who struggle. I came to see the ones who mess up. I came to see the ones who need the doctor. The second group. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting and people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't? Jesus said to them, the wedding guests cannot fast while the bridegroom is with them, can they? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast on that day. And then he goes on. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old cloak. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost. And so are the skins but one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. So on he goes with more objections. Why aren't you fasting when everyone else is? 
And Jesus says, because I'm here now, it's time to celebrate, not to fast. He is, he's not even following the, the proper calendar, the liturgical calendar that says when everything should be done in order to be a godly person. He's not following that at all. Instead, when everyone else is fasting, he's feasting. And his answer to that is that this is a new thing. Something brand new. Based on the old, rooted in the old, but it's new. And already in the second chapter of this first gospel that was written, Jesus is starting to pull away. He's starting to pull away from the religious leaders. He's starting to pull away from the temple. He's starting to pull away from much of what is established because it's become so inflexible. It's become unwieldy for ordinary people. It doesn't serve them at all or bring them any closer to God. And so Jesus is pulling away. One Sabbath, He was going through the grain, field and grain fields. And as they made their way, His disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And they'd pluck them up and rub them and eat the kernels. The Pharisees said to Him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? They, the act of the Sabbath of plucking up grain, rubbing it like this, and then eating the kernels, that was work. And you can't do work on the Sabbath, even if you're hungry. So they were violating the Sabbath law to feed themselves. Jesus said to them, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need of food? He entered the house of God when Abiathar, high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And he gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for humankind, and not humankind for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. There's a lot that's being said in this particular part. This is really cool stuff. First of all, the Sabbath was made for humankind and not humankind for the Sabbath. We are given a Sabbath day as a day of rest. That, that day of rest is for us to rest and recover. Recover ourselves. You know how busy you get, how you can lose yourself when you stay busy all the time? That's the whole idea of the Sabbath. That's why God established the Sabbath was so we could stop one day a week, stop, and remember who and whose we are. And somehow that gets perverted into some kind of twisted obligation where the, the more you can go without, the better and more faithful a person you are. And, and it became something with all these rigid rules. And Jesus said, no, that's not what it's meant for. It, it's meant for people to rest and be renourished and rejuvenated in God. But the story he chooses to refer to, the story of David eating the bread, the bread of the presence, it's an interesting story for him to cite. Because that happens in the book of 1 Samuel. David is not yet king. King is that nutcase Saul who's going crazy, and he's in one of his moods where he doesn't love David, he hates him, and he's been throwing spears at him, and he wants to kill David. David's on the run. He and his men are very hungry, and they come to the temple, the temple where the high priest is. And the high priest actually was Elimelech, not Abiathar. 
they come to this temple and he asks the priest, do you have any bread? We are so hungry. And the priest says, all I have is the bread of the presence. The bread of the presence is the bread they would put right on the altar. Now this altar in David's time, the Ark of the Covenant, remember the Ark of the Covenant? Remember Indiana Jones, of course, and makes Nazis' faces melt. No, the Ark of the Covenant is very powerful. So powerful that one guy once, when they were moving it, and it got jiggled, he reached out to catch it, and he was struck dead by God. Boy, David was mad that God did that. He really was. David turns to God and said, in, I'm paraphrasing, but he turns to God in our Bible and says, What is that? This is, this is how important the temple and the altar is. And this bread is baked and placed on the altar as an offering to God in this holy place where if you touch things, you could be struck dead. And only the priests, and only if they are really ritually clean, get to eat this bread. And they only eat it when new bread has been baked and fresh and warm, it replaces the bread that was there. David's not doing that. David is coming in and taking five loaves of holy bread and giving it to a bunch of ruffians that are walking around with him. Now, that in itself is pretty cool. That, that's a great citation by Jesus. Jesus is saying when human beings are hungry, they should eat the magic bread. <laughs> so right away he's, he's, he's saying, don't be a slave to tradition. If you're going to be a slave, be a slave directly to God. But beyond that, this story is supercharged with religious significance because of what happened after that priest helped David. David runs away. King Saul finds out that the priest helped David, calls the priest to him, asks if it's true. The priest says it's true. King Saul gathers all of the high priest's family all of his sons, his, the women and the children as well, and several of the priests, and has them all slaughtered. He puts to death the priesthood. In fact, it was so bad that he told his guards to kill the priests, and all the guards, good Jewish boys, said, uh-uh, and they stood back. But there was an Edomite there, a guy from another country, and he said, okay, Dougie, you do it. That was his name. It was like... I say Dougie, it was like Diug the Edomite. And, and he went and he slaughtered all these people. So there's some foreshadowing here too. When Jesus shares that story, first of all he's saying, holy is the human body that God made. And holy is anything that supports and makes it grow. And holy is any good work you do for God. Holy is not some little ceremony in Lord High mucky muck you do in front of a table. That's not holy. That's just supposed to help you remember what is holy. And then by citing that story, he's also foreshadowing what they're going to do to him and what they're going to do to his followers. He's run up against the wrong people. He's run up against the politicians. And already he's running up against the religious folk. And the religious folk and the politicians in Jesus' day are in league together. And he's going he's gonna to get it. And already in the second chapter, he's talking about this. Pretty amazing. This guy is something else. So, just to wrap things up, 
This next one is just incredible. Again, he entered the synagogue, Jesus did. And a man was there who had a withered hand. They watched him to see whether he would cure him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. You see that? How twisted is that? This guy comes in with a withered hand and all these religious people, they look at him and say, ah, I wonder if he's going to cure him. We'll get him then. There's a miracle about to happen. And all they're thinking about is Jesus breaking a rule. And Jesus said to the man who had the withered hand, come forward. Then he said to them, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? To save a life or to kill? But they were silent. He looked around at them with anger. He was grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. The man stretched it out and his hand was restored. Can you imagine what that meant to that man? To suddenly have use of that limb again. To, to, to have it back. And to be able to, to work, to live, to celebrate. Jesus just freed him from bondage. And then look at verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately conspired with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. That's their response to a miracle. Their response to someone being healed and made whole again is to try to destroy the healer. This is really scary stuff if you're a religious person, as I am. This is sobering stuff to read. Because it is our tendency to become holier than thou. It's our tendency. Well, there's a, there's a great old Buddhist saying about the wise man pointing at the moon and all the fools looking at his finger and saying, Oh, is that the moon? It's the same with, with this. This isn't God. And when we take this and we say it's inerrant, everything in here is true, we turn this into an idol. Now, in that story we just read today, if, if the Bible is inerrant, if everything in the Bible is absolutely accurate and true, then one of two things happened. When Jesus said the name of the high priest, when David went and got the bread, either Jesus got it wrong or the writer of 1 Samuel got it wrong. Now, is any of us prepared to say that the Son of God didn't know the name of the high priest during the time of Saul as king? Is any of us prepared here to say that the writer of Samuel maybe messed it up? Or are we prepared to say that the people who wrote this book maybe had different opinions or different scholarship and maybe it just wasn't quite right? Now, if this is inerrant to you, if every single word as written is absolutely true, you've got a quandary on your hands and you'll waste time burning over that while people are starving in the world and while folks are hurting and need others to talk to them. If you decide that this is God, 
Well, really, that's what we're talking about. By saying this is inerrant, that this is the holy word of God and that's all it is, what you're doing is you're doing your best to compress God and force God to just stay within these boundaries so you know where God always is and God can't move anywhere beyond where you are and do anything crazy that would surprise you and scare you. Maybe knock you off balance. Maybe force you to think things through a little bit more. Religion killed the Christ. It was the really religious people who had their minds blown and were so threatened that those that they had always closed out were to be welcomed in, that they conspired with the Roman government they hated and killed Jesus. Now, they even had an opportunity to save Jesus, remember? Pilate wanted to. It was a great tradition before the Passover. You can let one prisoner go. Shall I release Jesus? Pilate says, hoping they'll say yes. And the people who had flooded the square said, no, give us Barabbas, the murderer, instead. It behooves us as faithful people, as good church-going folk, to recognize that Jesus worked outside of the good religious folk. And Jesus went to people who were not good religious folk and found them to be rock-solid, faithful at times, confused, messy, confounding, occasionally stupid, but worthy of his attention. So, with the second chapter of Mark and part of the third now behind us, we who sit in church together, and I do hope you'll come back next week, <laughs> we need to ask ourselves, who would we close out? Who do we keep away that Jesus would want in? What is it that God is saying to us in our lives that we are refusing to hear because it's too inconvenient, it's too messy, it just blows our mind? God, the great quote, the great quote from C.S. Lewis from the Chronicles of Narnia, he's, he's talking about the lion Aslan. Aslan the lion, if you don't know the books, is the Christ figure and really the God figure in C.S. Lewis's seven books. Um, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, etc. The Chronicles of Narnia. Aslan, and C.S. Lewis was a Christian. And much of what he says about Aslan, he says about Christ, and he says about God. And he has this great quote where he says, in essence, God is good but God is not tame. Now think about that. God is good, but God is not tame. We do not control God. And we do not hold God to anything. That's turning things the wrong way around. God holds us.
in God's arms. And God holds us to promises that we make. And God holds us when we fall and picks us back up again. God is not limited by what's in here. If you would limit your God only to what's written in here, I would caution you that you can't squeeze God between bindings and force God to stay there. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow and forever. But we change. The human race changes. Situations and conditions change. And we need to change with them. And we need to carry our knowledge and wisdom and love of God with us into these new situations and live wide open. Otherwise, we are the religious killing the Christ. Amen.